Well, we can all relate to being tempted, can't we? Anybody never, ever been tempted in here? All right, so we're all on the same page. We can all relate to wanting that, that extra piece of cake. I mean, really tempted. It looks good. You know, it tastes good and you really want it. Or we can relate to being at the mall and knowing our credit card isn't quite maxed out yet. But, you know, there's some stuff you really need and you're going to save money. So why not just go ahead and, and purchase? Or we can relate to just telling that little bit of an untruth to make ourselves look better to the people around us. All of us have had to deal with temptation. That's part of life. We're in this series called, What Does God Want? And the question I need to answer today is, what does God want me to do when I am tempted? Since we all deal with it, wouldn't it be nice to know that when temptation comes our way, to know exactly what God wants us to do? Because we're all tempted. Being tempted is not sinful. It's the way we react to it that can get us in a lot of trouble. So what does God want us to do? Over the past several weeks, we've been looking at a section of teaching in the New Testament, in the book of Matthew, called the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus tells his followers what God would like for them to do, or what God demands that they do, what it means to live a godly life. This is the longest recorded, printed section of scripture where Jesus talks without end. And he just talks about what God wants. He talks about how we can live a godly life. And he talks about what God wants us to do when we're tempted. There's some Bibles coming down the aisles right now, along with some What's Up cards. If you didn't get a What's Up card today, I'm going to instruct you on what you can write on that uh, in just a few minutes. So if you don't have one, raise your hand, either a Bible or a What's Up card. Those Bibles are yours to keep. If you don't have one, take it home. Read the words in there that at LifePoint we believe are the words of God that can lead you to a knowledge of what it means to have a relationship with the one true God. And also, if you don't have a What's Up card, take one of those as well. So Jesus starts in Matthew chapter 5 talking to people who had been following because thousands of people now are following Jesus and he starts to talk to them about how they had taken God's law. These were mostly good religious people who were listening to this, but they had taken God's law and turned it into something that it, that it was never meant to be. And what Jesus does over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount is he says, you think God's law means this, but I want to tell you what it really meant when God said it. And he, most of the time, he's talking about the Ten Commandments. You can read about in the book of Exodus, chapter 20. And the one he's talking about today that he relates to temptation is the Seventh Commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, where God said, You shall not commit adultery. They had misunderstood exactly what was meant by committing adultery. Now, adultery is having sex with someone who is not your husband or your wife. It's pretty simple. Sex is reserved for that relationship between a man and a woman in marriage in any other context. It's wrong. It's against God's law, against God's will. Now, could you imagine Jesus standing on this mountainside teaching, 
And he says, hey, I would like a show of hands. I'm not asking for it here. I would like a show of hands. How many of you have committed adultery? Probably no hands went up. How many have committed adultery? Not, how many of you have not committed adultery? And probably guys were like, oh, us? We, we haven't. Ladies raising their hand, patting themselves on the back. We, we've not committed adultery. And Jesus goes on to tell them what adultery really is. In Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 27, he says, You've heard that it was said, referring to Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, Do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, what Jesus was doing here, again, is clarifying what the scriptures mean. You've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. Rabbis have taught you that. Maybe your parents taught you that. But let me tell you what it really means. And he follows up, don't commit adultery, with the word, but... I tell you that if you look at someone lustfully, you're committing adultery in your heart. Now, it wasn't like all of a sudden Jesus gave a new meaning to the command, don't commit adultery. It always meant, don't just do it. We don't want you to not do it physically, but Jesus is saying, I don't want you to even think about it. It had always meant don't lust. It wasn't like God was okay with lust till Jesus came along and said, hey, we got to tweak this a little bit because they're not really listening. So let's put lust in there under adultery. It was always a phys physical and a spiritual thing. And Jesus comes along and says, look, you are, you're off base. You're proud of yourselves because you haven't done this physical act when in reality, you do it in your mind all the time. See, to them, and even today, adultery is viewed as just a physical act that breaks the covenant of marriage. But it's more than that. It's not just a physical act. Jesus says, if you look lustfully, you've already done it. And Jesus gets quickly to the core of where adultery really starts. And this is not just for married people. How many married people are in here? Raise your hand. Be proud. Come on, be proud. How many people hope to be married someday? All right, be proud. Come on. If you've sworn off marriage, come talk to me. It's wonderful. You need to do it. So Jesus is telling them that adultery starts in the heart. And just imagine if he asked the question again, now how many of you have committed adultery? And they probably are like, cricket, 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 not willing to answer because now that gets everybody because we all, we all have issues with lust. We all have issues with temptation. They legitimately could have been thinking, well, how, how do you commit adultery in your heart? I thought adultery was this outward physical act. I mean, adultery is sex, right? Well, not just. The word adultery is used in the Old Testament to refer to what God's people did, the Israelite nation, when their heart turned after other gods. When they were rebellious against, the, against God and they broke their covenant with their creator God, God called them an adulterous nation and that had nothing to do with sex. So can adultery still be adultery and not have anything to do with sex? According to Jesus, according to what the Bible says, yes. It can take place 
in the heart. So what does God want me to do when I'm tempted? God wants me to guard my heart. That's what it says in the book of Proverbs, chapter 4, verse 23. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Guard your heart against lustful thoughts. Now, there's a difference in a look and a lust. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, guys, just be real for a minute. I mean, God has some really nice pieces of work out there, doesn't he? I mean, he's done really nice work. And then whatever our culture defines as beauty, I mean, he's nailed it several times. He's done a great job. And so you wouldn't be human if you didn't see a physically attractive person and think, well, there's a physically attractive person. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong, ladies. Let me talk ladies. If you see a really nice-looking guy, hey, there's a nice-looking guy. That's it. No big deal. But it gets into the area of sin and lust when it's the second look, when it's the fantasizing look, when, it, when the looking makes you less content with the person God has joined you with in marriage. Then it becomes lust. So there's a big difference looking like, oh, nice work, God, and then lust like, oh, I wish I had that. Those are two very different things. Guard your heart against the latter. Guard your heart so it never goes beyond a look. When someone acts outwardly in this area and many other areas, it's because they acted inwardly first, Right? I mean, nobody just finds themselves in the middle of something and goes, man, how did I get in this sin? How in the world did that happen? Dang, honey, I was just walking down the street. Boom, it just hit me. I, I mean, I don't know what happened. That's not how it works. It's usually an action that came from a thought or fantasy or incorrect thinking in the brain that eventually came out as an action because my thought life is a potential preview to my actions physically. That's why God says, guard your heart. That's why Jesus explains this command as more than physical. There were physical affairs going on, no doubt. He was talking to thousands of people, so surely there were physical affairs going on. And what he's saying is, you're having affairs because you're thinking about having affairs. And I want you to stop at the thought level and guard your heart. Because if you don't get to the source and you allow the thought life and the fantasy life to go and go and go, eventually opportunity is going to line up with what you've been thinking and that is a recipe for disaster. Anybody that's ever done anything wrong in that area, they did it because the opportunity lined up with what they had already been thinking and they're in trouble. You ever read about lottery winners who all of a sudden win millions of dollars and a few years later they go back and interview them and they're penniless? You ever see that? It's like, how in the world could you lose $100 million? Well, it's because they're not good money managers in the first place, but they never had any money to mismanage, so now all of a sudden they do. What's going to make it any different? Opportunity just lined up with what was already in their heart. And that's what happens when people don't guard their hearts and you don't protect your thought life, 
And you don't just stop at a look. It turns into lust. And then opportunity comes along like it does for every breathing human being. And then what you've been thinking matches up with that opportunity and you've got a big decision to make because now there's a big opportunity for sin to be born in your life. And sin has a process. It's not just something that just pops up one day. It's a process. It's talked about in James chapter 1, beginning at verse 13. James says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he's dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is full grown, it gives birth to death. There's a process. It's not just a thing that happens like that. It starts by being tempted. It starts by being, by being lured away. It starts by thinking that some things are okay that aren't okay. That's why, that's why this thing called pornography is such an evil acid drip on the brain is because it plays out in images over and over what people really want to be, think they want to be doing physically and before, before they know it, its hooks are in them. And then an opportunity arises down the road. And what they've been thinking about now is in front of them. What do you think the choice is going to be? Well, here's the opportunity. And I've been thinking about it. So why not? See, this idea of sin is not just this thing that comes on you all at once. It's enticing. It's kind of like, hmm, this, this might be interesting. And then it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And then it's full-blown. Imagine for a moment you're a fish, a trout, okay? And you're a trout out swimming one morning, and you're looking for breakfast, and you see this oddly colored bug that's shining like no other bug has ever shined before, and you're hungry, and then it goes away. And then a few minutes later, it comes back. And then it goes away and it comes back and it just keeps getting going in and out of the water. And finally, you're like, I've got to have a bite of that. So you swim up to this strangely shaped colored bug and you take a bite. And by the time you take the bite, you realize I have made a huge mistake. Because it's a fisherman's lure and a hook that gets in you. And now you're on your way to somebody's house for dinner and you're the main course. That's what sin does. Sin looks good, and it's easy to justify, and it's like, i got to have it. And then when you get so close to it, and you've been so enticed, it's got its hooks in you. That's why the Bible says, guard your heart, because it's so easy to get pulled away and enticed. So how do I guard my heart against things that might look like fun and look like they're good for me and look like it might be what God wants? How do I do that? The first thing you do is you've got to predetermine what your actions are going to be when you're faced with temptation. For 12 years of my ministry, my first 12 years in ministry, I was a pastor to college students on three different college campuses. And if there's any place that opportunity lines up with what you would really like to do, it's a college. It's that first couple of years. Any parents got their kids going to school pretty soon this fall? I'm going to scare you to death, you know? So that's when the time comes. I mean, there, there's opportunity to do about anything you want. And I remember 
these college students, when I would see them dating, I would say, hey, come here, let's have a little talk. Let's talk about the purity. Let's talk about how you're handling that. And over and over again, especially when guys would come and confess that they were dealing with this this sexual desire and they really wanted to have sex with their girlfriend and and what do I do and I would say you got to decide sitting here in this office because you are not strong enough to get in your apartment play a love movie eat popcorn turn the lights down lay on the couch you're not strong enough to say no then what guy is you got to say no now before you ever get there before you ever find your yourself in the place where you've got to make the decision you pre-think it and you make the decision Last year, I was so happy that our youth pastor went through a series about purity, about staying pure before you get married and saving yourself, your body for your spouse. And at the end of that, all the teenagers that went through it had the opportunity to get a purity ring or a purity necklace, which just says, I've decided now that I'm going to be pure for my husband or wife when God sends them into my life. That's wise Man, I wish somebody had told me that as a teenager. Like, decide now. Because when you get in the middle and hormones are raging and emotions are raging, you're going to make the wrong decision if you haven't pre-thought it. How do you do that in life? Because, because it's, sin just creeps up on us so slowly. People just don't wake up one day and say, I'm going to have an affair. Just wanted you to know honey, I wanted to tell you, that's what I'm going to do. That's not how it works. This coming weekend, I'm officiating a wedding. And every time I officiate a wedding, I require the couples to write their vows to each other because I think it's way more special for them to express that to each other than to just repeat what I say, whatever I come up with. So this couple, they're going to repeat those vows to each other. And I bet neither one of them have in mind, and I'm going to have an affair. I'm going to break this covenant. That's my plan. I just want you to know as we're going into it. Nobody does that. People stand at the altar and say, for the rest of my life, I'm going to keep myself to you and to you only. And I want God to know. I want my friends to know. And let's get a pastor to pray over it. And we will be faithful to each other. But yet, affairs still happen. Because sin creeps up so slowly that you're in it You're hooked on the lure before you even realize this is a bad decision. It's too late. So how do you guard your heart and predetermine what you're going to do? There's a psychologist by the name of Jay Lindsay who talks about this 12-step process that people go through who have affairs. He, he counsels a lot of people who've gone through affairs and, and recovered, and, and there is forgiveness, there is, uh, th- there is restoration for marriages, but this is what most people go through step by step, and everybody goes through some of these steps. But most people, there are 12 steps to an affair. The first step is readiness. Maybe, maybe your needs aren't being met at home. Maybe sexually things just aren't as va va voom as they used to be, you know. Some thumpsin's just not right. And so you feel like, gosh, I just, I'm so unfulfilled. He doesn't fulfill me, she doesn't fulfill me, whatever it is. It, it's just not working. So there's readiness. And then, and then right after readiness, the next step is this alertness to the opposite sex. And then after that alertness really gets in and, and starts to work, 
there's just some innocent meetings start to take place, just a chance meeting at, at work or even at church. And, 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 you know, it's just innocent, nothing wrong with that. And then from that innocent meeting, there becomes this meeting that it's intentional. Like, hey, let's, let's get together. We, we got to talk. We got to, you know, I just, I just want to be around you. And you find yourself being in the same place this person is. And you, you find yourself bumping into them by chance, you know, around town. And then from that moves to step number five, that there's this public lingering, you know, to talk. Let's just, let's hang out and talk after the meeting. Let's hang out and talk after work. It's okay. And hey, why don't you, uh, why don't you uh, shoot me an email and let's, let's try to be at the same meeting again the next time. And then it moves to this, this, private lingering that might be in a group but it's really private and hey why don't you why don't you uh facebook me and let's let's message on there because you know that is not traceable you can delete that nobody ever sees it and it gets a little more little more private and then from private lingering it moves to this purposeful isolation it's pre-planned it's it's saying let's let's get together at this time, and hey, I got to drop something off from work. I've got to, I've got to, I got to meet you because there's a legitimate purpose. And then step seven moves to step eight, where it's pleasurable isolation. Now we're just friends, but we need to meet over coffee and talk this through. Somebody the opposite sex, so there's more looking into their eyes. There's more notice of perfume and clothes and and there's just starting to feel like you know what i want to give that person a hug so you give them a hug and you know thank thank you for understanding thank you for for just understanding that my husband's a jerk or or my wife's a nag and just thank you and you know you just hug and and that hug feels good and then you move on to step number 10 which is a it's a passionate embrace and then by the time you get to step 10 you move on to the next one which is just I yield to my feelings I just yield to my feelings that this person could make me happier than the person I committed to for life I'm just going to give in and then after you get there it's acceptance this person that this person that I've spent this time with, I love them. In fact, they have everything that my spouse doesn't have. And, and we need to get closer. In fact, I've created a life in my head just for us, and we're going to take the steps to make it happen. And this psychologist says, by the time a person gets to step number 12, at this point, confrontation or intervention is of little value because no one else matters. Nothing else matters except the affair. I get a call one day a couple years back from a friend in another, another state, another city, and he's devastated. I'm like, man, what's up? And he's just distraught. And he said, I just had an affair. I was like, what? What happened? Well, we bumped into each other when I went home to visit and... and we went out for coffee, and then there was this movie playing that, that she wanted to see, and then, and then we kind of hung out again and just talked, and then, and then I'm driving her back home, and we stop at a hotel, and we have sex. What do I do? I mean, this guy went through all 12 steps in like three minutes, but 
he was, the guy was devastated. But if you had asked him a week before, you're going to have an affair, mess around on your wife, totally destroy your marriage? No, I'm not going to do that. So you're going to meet an old friend and end up in a hotel with her? No, I'm not going to do that. That's what he would say. But that's not how sin works. Here's what the Bible says about sin. Genesis 4. If you do what's right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. But you must master it. See, when, when you're over here, step one, and, and things aren't going well at home, and there's somebody else you start to notice that's the time to just guard your heart like you've never guarded it before. Because just at the next step, there's sin saying, oh, just come on a little further, just like that fishing lure. Just come on a little closer. Just come on a little closer. It's waiting. It's just waiting to get its claws in you and pull you down the line until you're at a place you never thought you would be. And what Jesus is trying to say is, stop it in your heart and in your mind because that's a potential preview to what can happen. And if I could bring people up here who have been down this road from, from 1 to 12, they would say, don't do it. It's not worth it. In fact, generally 3% of the people who have affairs get married to each other, and then 75% of those people get divorced. At this point, maybe the people listening to Jesus are like, all right, Jesus, it, it's a look. Come on. It's a look. Jesus knew that looking can lead to death. Proverbs 6 says, Do not lust in your heart after her beauty or let her captivate you with her eyes, for the prostitute reduces you to a loaf of bread. I mean, she can squash you. And the adulteress preys upon your very life. Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? So is he who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. Can you think of people that you've seen in the, in the press even? Are there politicians that have lost everything because they went from 1 to 12? And if you had asked them, hey, you want to ruin your political career by sleeping with somebody that's not your wife? They would have said, no way, I won't do that. But it was so subtle, so slow, such baby steps, feeling like the right thing. They get to step 12, and it's like, I don't care about my career. I love this person. Can you think of stars, of athletes, friends that have gone through these 12 steps with something like is hooked to them, just pulling them from one step to another? Jesus is serious about us guarding our hearts. This is what he says. If you're dealing with lust, here's what I want you to do. Matthew 5, verse 29, next thing he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Jesus is saying, look, take drastic action. While you're over here at this readiness, this alertness, take some drastic action. Move, quit your job, walk away. Change your phone number, delete your Facebook account, whatever it is you have to do, cut it off, take some drastic action. Or you're going to find yourself over here at step 12 saying, how in the world did I get here? 
we were just having some arguments and maybe she wasn't attractive or he wasn't attractive as he once was. And then all of a sudden I find myself in a hotel with somebody that's not my spouse. How did that happen? It happened because you let it get into you when it was over here and it pulled you step by step without even realizing it until it's too late. And Jesus is saying, look, take drastic action. How do I do that? You need to put up some guardrails in your life because guardrails are a way out. You know, I know that a message has connected when people ask me about it later. And they ask me for the notes or, hey, what do you mean when you said this? Or where can I get the recording of that? And I, I gave this message, it had to be almost three years ago, where I talked about putting some guardrails in our lives. Does anybody remember that? Come on. Yeah, see, people remember that. Yeah. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay, like four people. That's awesome. They remember this message and where I talked about some guardrails being in our lives. So if, if sin is up here, then I'm going to take a few steps back and I'm going to have some guardrails in my life. So when I, if I do make a mistake, like we all do, I don't fall over the edge and end up at step 12 in a hotel room going, what in the world have I done? So I put some guardrails in my life and you need to put some guardrails in your life. Just in the last couple of weeks, two different people came to me, email or phone call and said, Hey, you remember that message you did? And that's before they didn't know anything about what was coming up in this message. Hey, you remember that message you did where you talked about guardrails? Well, I have a friend. <laughs> he was having some trouble. And could you, could you let, can I give me that recording or tell me where it is? So I send him the email and I, I tell him, okay, here's, here's some of the steps that I have in my life. And, and just some of the rails, railings, the guardrails that I have in my life are things like allowing my wife complete total access to my computer anytime she wants it. She can look at it anytime she wants to look, and the history's not going to be all cleared out. That's a guardrail. Because if she finds something, if I've had a moment of weakness, like we all can have, she's going to see it. And she's going to say, what's the deal? Let's stop this thing now. I have other guardrails in my life. Like, I don't, I don't ever get alone in a car with a female that's not family. I just don't. I just won't do it. Now, is there anything wrong with that? No, there's nothing wrong, sinful about it. But it's a guardrail that keeps me from even getting to step one. Our staff, they all have that guardrail. Every one of them. So if you ever see anybody from LifePoint staff, my phone number is 62. I'm kidding. <laughs> but really, tell me. If you see me, say, hey, you just stood up there and told the whole church. That's another guardrail. If I tell you, that's a few hundred people that know my guardrail. So if you see me over the guardrail, you're like, whoa, 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 you said you didn't do that because I'm not above messing up. I need guardrails in my life. Rob, our site pastor here who does almost all the counseling at LifePoint, goes to great lengths to make sure that there's always somebody at the office when a female's coming for counseling. It's a guardrail. You need to have those guardrails in your life. Whatever those are, and I have more. I'd be glad to share them with you if you want to know. Guardrails provide a way out so you don't start down that 12-step path to an affair. 1 Corinthians 10, beginning at verse 13, says this. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. 
He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. So everybody can relate to being at this readiness like, gosh, things at home just aren't, aren't quite like they used to be. But nobody gets here and says, I'm on my way down there to step 12. Uh, this is what I plan on doing. Nobody does that. It happens so slowly that you don't realize it till you're already there. Just like the fish thinks it's going for this awesome breakfast, and then all of a sudden it's on the fisherman's table for dinner. That's what sin wants to do to you and to me. It wants to be so slow with us that we don't even realize it's happening. I forgot something. Uh, everybody's got a what's up card. And while Daniel sings this song, you have an opportunity to just write anything you want on that card. Help, I'm at step two. Help, I don't even want to be at step one. Pray that I put up good guardrails in my life. Whatever it is, or just the word help. Whatever that is. Rob and I will be standing at the back door on the way out. You drop the card in the envelopes we have, and no one will see those cards that have things written on them but me and Rob. So as this song plays, listen to the words and write down whatever your request is, whatever you need help with, and we'll be in touch. You don't have to be dragged away and enticed. You can stop it. You can guard your heart the way God wants you to guard your heart. And it all starts right up here and right in here. Jesus referred to our thoughts and what's in our heart because he knew if we can give him rule there, then if we're on this path, it'll be so much easier to get off of it. Everybody makes mistakes. Everyone can be restored. Even you. If you feel like you're on this path and you want help, just put it on the back of your WhatsApp card and we'll be in touch. Let's pray. God, I pray for people who right now, today, have allowed themselves to be dragged away. Father, may that slow pull towards destruction of their marriage and their family be turned around today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for coming. Enjoy your holiday weekend, and I'll see you next week.